Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the night of Monday the 15th of December 1986 in the northern New South Wales town of Brunswick Heads. To call this river hamlet of a few thousand people sleepy is a bit of an understatement. In fact, the Sydney Morning Herald has just a week ago described it this way. Brunswick Heads is renowned for three things. Good fresh fish lunches at the pub fantastic chutneys sold periodically by a nice old gal who sets her stall by the roadside and the most tasteful beach toilets on the north coast. With good surfing, swimming and fishing, Brunswick Heads is a perfect place to forget about the rest of the world. And with summer here and Christmas just 10 days away, Relaxing is what local man Douglas Bean should be doing with his wife Karen and their two children. The 39-year-old certainly looks like a laid-back dude. Blue eyes, wide smile, curly blonde hair, lanky build and the faint trace of an American accent. But no matter how hard Doug tries, he can never really chill out. That's because Even living off the beaten track, he lives with the constant paranoia that the world is going to catch up with him. And tonight, this, his worst fear, comes true when the Brunswick Heads police arrive on his doorstep. These local cops from this little Aussie backwater are serving an arrest warrant issued on behalf of one of the world's most powerful institutions. 
the United States military. It's an arrest warrant originally issued 16 years ago when the American armed forces first started chasing him for a string of crimes. He's been on the run since 1970, but now the long arm of the law has caught up with US Marine Private First Class Douglas Bean. And if he's extradited and court-martialed, he might face the death penalty. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. American military forces officially fought in Vietnam from 1965 until 1973. During those eight years, 58,200 service members were killed in action, and more than 2,500 were listed as missing in action. In 1986, over a decade after the end of the war, the question was increasingly asked, were some of these MIAs still being held in Vietnam as prisoners of war? Evidence about live sightings of American soldiers in Southeast Asia was that year given in United States Senate committee hearings. And the idea of bringing these boys home by any means necessary, well, that had just been fueled by jingoistic blockbuster Rambo First Blood Part 2. Yet the one soldier who was brought home that year, he wasn't a forgotten hero freed from a hellish Vietnamese bamboo cage by a muscle-bound American macho man. But while Douglas Bean was far from a hero, his story did have all the elements of a Hollywood movie, just one more likely to star Paul Newman than Sylvester Stallone. Douglas Bean was born in June 1947 and raised in the small town of Randolph in Vermont's beautiful and rugged Green Mountains. His father was a heavy machinery operator and his mother a factory worker and they lived with Doug and his five brothers and one sister in a rustic backwoods cottage. Growing up, Doug was a bit of a loner. He preferred hunting and fishing to the company of other kids. Rochester High School was small and there were just 14 students in Doug's final year. When he graduated in June 1965, he was the only one who didn't go to the class party and the only one who wasn't going to college. Instead, on the 1st of July, aged just 17, Doug joined the US Marine Corps. His reason for enlisting? Depending on who Doug was talking to, he told two versions of this story. In one, he was a patriotic kid so brainwashed by propaganda that he wanted to fight the evils of communism. In the other, he committed a minor crime and the judge gave him two options, jail time or join the military. Either way, Doug might be in the firing line because just four months earlier, the US Marines had become the first combat troops committed to the far-off war in Vietnam. Doug did boot training at the hellhole of hazing that was Paris Island in South Carolina. There, he trained as a cook, which meant that while he might see frontline duty, he'd be less likely to actually have to fight. By early 1966, US Marine Private First Class Douglas Bean was on his first overseas deployment. Not to Vietnam, but to the Mediterranean. 
But two years later, he was sent to Vietnam, where Doug served as a cook with the 1st Force Service Regiment stationed at Da Nang. He arrived during the lengthy Tet Offensive, during which the United States military faced serious, sustained attacks by the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong. This was a, perhaps the, turning point of the war. At the very least, the Tet Offensive made serving soldiers, the military brass, politicians, the American public and the growing anti-war movement realise that the Vietnam War wasn't going to be won anytime soon. Although Doug wasn't actively fighting the enemy, what he saw of the war greatly affected him. The poverty and hunger of the Vietnamese people tugged at his heart. So did seeing piles of body bags containing dead American soldiers being loaded onto pallets for transportation back home. Yet, Doug reckoned he lived more in fear of his own side than the enemy. He claimed he was bastardised by his commanding officers and subject to an unprovoked physical attack by another American soldier. More disturbingly, he said he'd nearly been killed when a fellow Marine went crazy with his machine gun, killing two American soldiers and wounding three others. In July 1968, Doug, who soon after arriving in Vietnam had started smoking dope and visiting brothels, had to return home for a brief visit to attend his grandmother's funeral. He told family and friends what it was like to be over there and they urged him not to return and to instead flee to Canada. But Doug said no. He didn't want to live the rest of his life as a fugitive. Besides, his four-year Marine term would be finished soon enough. But in May 1969, Doug wrote his mother a, quote, strange letter that led to her inquiring with the Red Cross to find out what was going on with her son. What she didn't know was that Doug had gotten involved with black market currency trading. Caught doing a dodgy dollar deal by a fellow Marine, he had threatened to kill this man. Now, just three weeks before he was due to go home, Doug faced a general court-martial on five counts of changing US currency, of being off-limits, and of making this death threat. Rather than face military justice, Doug got himself a forged civilian ID and fled on a flight to Saigon. What he'd just done was added desertion to his list of crimes. Even so, Doug found himself oddly thrilled by being a fugitive in South Vietnam's bustling capital city. It was just magical, he said of landing there. But he had no idea of what he was going to do or where he was going to go. Doug hailed a taxi. He asked, where am I going to stay tonight? The driver took him to a hotel. There, Doug met a deserter who'd been on the run for over a year, and so it was that he was soon back doing business on the currency black market. Nine months later, around January 1970, Doug was hiding out in Dalat, a beautiful mountain resort town that had been spared much of the horror of the war. 
It was here that his career as a fugitive appeared to come to an end when American military police nabbed him. But through their incompetence, Doug got away. He escaped by simply running through an unlocked door. He hid under a bush for two days before he was recaptured. Doug's situation was FUBAR, a military acronym which in its gentlest variation means fouled up beyond all repair. In addition to black market currency dealing, making a death threat against a fellow soldier and desertion, he was now charged with escaping custody. Extreme circumstances called for extreme measures, so Doug yanked a three-inch piece of wire from a prison toilet, put this U-shaped steel strand onto buttered bread and ate it, which, unsurprisingly, made him very sick. Military police interpreted this as a suicide attempt and Doug was transferred to a military hospital back in Da Nang. With security again lax, on the 28th of February, he fled the ward and this time hid for 12 hours while authorities searched for him. Snatching a helmet and flak jacket from outside an operating room, Doug posed as a marine aviator and got on a flight to Saigon. There, he disappeared again. Using his underworld contacts, Doug got his hands on a staff sergeant's uniform, a fake ID and travel orders so he could get out of the country. Arriving at the Saigon airport on the 27th of April 1970, he found he had the choice of two flights. The plane to Sydney left in an hour. The one to Honolulu, that wasn't for four hours. Doug figured that the longer he hung around, the more chance he had of being caught. So he got on the flight to Australia. It has to be noted that Doug told numerous variations on these stories. In one, he'd actually been stationed in Cambodia. Doug went AWOL and for months he lived among and was protected by locals. Kind of like Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now until he was caught by American Special Forces. A less exciting story of his escape from Saigon had him simply stealing a coat which fortunately had in a pocket a military ID and travel papers that let him board a plane for Sydney. Yet another iteration saw him getting out of Vietnam with the help of a sympathetic Catholic priest who smuggled him aboard a ship bound for Australia. However Douglas Bean actually pulled it off, he was in Sydney by late April 1970, carrying $700 in cash and a bottle of Canadian club whiskey. He bought a blonde wig to hide his crew cut. But Sydney was still a dangerous place because, as an R&R destination for American soldiers, its streets were also teeming with US military police on the lookout for deserters and Doug was wanted for far more than simple desertion. Doug found people he could trust in the growing anti-war movement, and they gave him the Canberra address of a young radical named Jack Waterford. Jack's house was the headquarters for an intersecting group of leftist and progressive causes, including the Vietnam Moratorium, the Draft Dodgers Union, anti-apartheid activists 
and the burgeoning Australian women's liberation movement. Nearly 50 years later, Jack Waterford, now a veteran journalist and editor, tells me via email how he helped Doug Bean evade capture. He writes, We took him in on general principle of his being a deserter, though we were well aware of his special status. Jack continues, We needed to straighten out identity matters. There was a card issued by students' associations to students travelling abroad called an IUS card. IUS equals International Union of Students. I issued him one with photo attached, identifying him as Paul Reed, a Canadian studying in Australia. He used this to open a bank account and to get an ACT driver's licence. By the end of a day or two, he had any amount of casual documentation establishing his identity. End quote. Incredibly, these documents were good enough for Doug to pass security checks to get a job as a cook with, of all employers, an American military contractor called Collins Radio that was heavily involved with operations of US-Australian space tracking stations. So it came to be that a wanted fugitive was working at a highly classified facility. He was, as Jack Waterford remembers, quote, working inside the security screen with most of his workmates, Yankees, working on rocket communications. This was a dangerous business given Doug had vowed that he would die before he was taken by American military police. But Doug seemed to enjoy living on the edge. Jack recalls, Because our house was sometimes raided by cops, I was very puritanical about drugs on the premises, but it was hard to separate Doug from casual possession of pot or LSD. One day in June 1971, Jack got a tip-off that the police were coming, so he raced home to get rid of incriminating items used in protests, such as flares and whistles. Jack also called Doug slash Paul at Collins Radio. Aware that the house phone was bugged by ASIO, Jack said, Paul, we're expecting friends for dinner and are cleaning up. Is there any mess of yours to which you want to draw attention? Doug knew what this meant and told Jack that it was very filthy behind the fridge. Jack recalls, We pulled the fridge out expecting to find a little stash. Instead, there was a loaded 22 rifle there. It was hardly a cache of submachine guns, but it gave some weight to DB's assertion that he would not be taken alive by US military police. In any event, its registration number had been filed off and it would have seemed highly sus. I and another chap were out the back door with it pronto, running up Mount Ainsley where, a ridge or two from our house, we buried it. Jack tells me that he and other activists never considered using Doug for anti-war propaganda purposes. Firstly, it'd be too dangerous for him to surface and secondly, he just wasn't particularly politically minded. Jack recalls, A good many of his stories, including of dealing with Vietnamese-Cambodian girls in the drug markets and in a milieu of deserters, chances and wide boys living in the back streets of Saigon, did not show him to be very heroic or very honourable. 
Even so, the Canberra activists mostly liked him, though with some reservations. Jack says, He helped keep us entertained, but he was no one in particular's friend, and having come on strong to girls, he could be quite cruel and dismissive after he had his wicked way with them. Male folk in the house quickly learnt that they should not leave their girlfriends at his mercy. He never touched mine, though, as with almost every woman, there was a non-stop charm, tease and try-on. Working at Collins Radio, doing drugs, stashing guns and hitting on other men's lovers, Doug clearly had a lot of nerve soon after arriving in Australia. But it wasn't long before his paranoia about getting caught got the better of him and he moved to the New South Wales south coast where a wanted man was less likely to be found. Growing up as a backwoods kid had prepared Doug for the itinerant life he now had to follow, hunting foxes, building fences and planting trees for farmers who asked few questions and who paid cash. Doug might have been a loner when he was a youngster, but being on the run didn't mean he lacked for company. Quite the opposite. In 1972, the charming American met Karen Maloney. Even though he confessed his story, she still fell head over heels in love with him. Doug and Karen did whatever work they could find, living hand to mouth, but they were always looking over their shoulders. Despite this danger and hardship, by the end of the 1970s, after moving to the New South Wales north coast, the couple had two children. Doug not only had an Australian family, but he also wasn't completely cut off from his folks back in Vermont. Occasionally, he'd send a telegram home to his sister. The message was always the same, just a phone number and the word urgent. She would call and, in his fading American accent, he'd talk with her, his brothers and parents and tell them how homesick he was and how he feared he'd never get to see them again. But Doug's sister did see him when she visited Australia for six weeks in 1980. By now, he'd been a fugitive for a decade. All this time, American authorities had known Doug was in Australia because they'd intercepted a letter he'd written to his parents. But he hadn't been stupid enough to give away too many details of his whereabouts or make things easy for his pursuers by including a return address. So Doug's trail stayed cold. Even though Douglas Bean had contact with his folks, a young family and seemed to be living in relative safety, by the mid-1980s, he was sick of being a man without an identity and without a country. So he took a big risk and confessed everything to Australia's Department of Immigration and Ethnic Affairs. Officials sought legal advice to ask whether they were bound to tell the US Embassy and the Australian Department of Defence about Doug. They weren't, and so they didn't. The department considered Doug's case for a couple of years before granting him residency on compassionate and humanitarian grounds. This wasn't the only good news. 
after a lengthy separation, Doug and Karen got back together and were legally able to get married in September 1986. But soon after, he got some bad news. His father, who he hadn't seen since 1968, was pretty sick. Doug needed to see his dad, and he wanted his folks to meet Karen and the kids. Now he took his biggest risk yet by applying for an American passport to return home, even though Australia's Department of Immigration and Ethnic Affairs had cautioned him against any such move. Doug's reasoning was that his Australian residency and the passing of so many years should protect him from prosecution. But it didn't. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. On the night of the 15th of December, 1986, Douglas Bean found himself in custody in the Brunswick Heads Police Station. Australian Naval Police came for him the next day and he was flown to Sydney. Amid a scrum of reporters, photographers and news cameramen, the pale-looking prisoner was escorted through the airport by three Naval Police. I'm worried about what will happen to my children, Doug told the media and added that he'd deserted because he'd had enough of Vietnam. Yet it wasn't even clear that Doug's arrest had been legal. He wasn't accused of committing a crime in Australia and he'd been detained under the 1963 Visiting Forces Act which provided for the return of visiting soldiers who'd deserted in Australia. But Doug wasn't a visiting soldier when he arrived in Sydney. He'd already deserted in Vietnam. So did the act apply? Defence Minister Kim Beasley believed that it did and that his government should agree to Douglas Bean's extradition to the United States. But that was going to be tested in the High Court of Australia the following April. In the meantime, Doug was granted bail of $40,000 and was free to reunite with Karen and the kids. He was also an instant media celebrity, his face on newspaper front pages and television screens all over the world. And as if the details of his escape from Vietnam and recapture weren't dramatic enough, his private life while on the run proved even more sensational. On the 21st of December 1986, Sydney's Sun-Herald newspaper devoted five full pages to Doug, who it called a Scarlet Pimpernel and Casanova. Life and Love on the Run, read the front page headline, followed by subheadings How US Deserter Charmed the Women and The Children He Left Behind. One paragraph read, He led US authorities a merry chase by changing his name and living in exotic communes. His life on the run wasn't all fear. He also found time for romance 
quite a bit of it. The newspaper wasn't exaggerating. Doug hadn't just fathered two children, now aged 11 and 9, with Karen. Soon after he'd met Karen back in 1972, Doug had also been enjoying a sexual relationship with a Hare Krishna woman named Saranya. She'd given birth first to their daughter, now 13, and then their son, now aged 11. What's more, this other family lived on a commune not far from Brunswick Heads, his Krishna kids growing up just a few kilometres from half-siblings they didn't know existed. But that wasn't all. Then there were Doug's eight-year-old twins who he'd had in the late 1970s with a woman named Valeria. Yet there were still more. Rounding out his scattered brood were a further three children, all aged five or under, that he'd had with a woman named Helen. In his time on the run down under, Douglas Bean had fathered nine children by four different women. While Saranya and Valeria were shorter relationships, he had actually separated from Karen around 1980 when he'd met Helen. And they'd only split up a few months before his arrest, meaning Helen was happy to talk to several Sydney newspapers. She told them she'd been just 20 years old and had never had a boyfriend before she met Doug on the ski slopes in New Zealand. She immediately fell in love with this man who called himself Paul. But from the start, he told her everything. His real name, that he was a deserter, and that he already had six kids by three different women back in Australia. It didn't matter to Helen, who quit her arts degree to follow him back across the Tasman. From 1980 to 1986, she and the man she called Paul moved around New South Wales, living in regional towns in the Central West. In the wake of Doug's arrest, she told the Sun-Herald, The way we had to live was a real shock to me at first, but I went along with Paul because I loved him. Paul liked isolated farms because he could see people coming. Sometimes he became so nervous about being caught that he'd have to sleep outside. Doug slash Paul, who she desperately wanted to marry, was plagued by fears. As she put it, who wouldn't be affected by that war? He had constant nightmares. He was terrified about something, but he could never talk about it. The couple grew their own vegetables, he hunted and fished, and they had their three children. We lived a day-to-day existence, she told the newspaper, just glad to make it through one before looking at the next. Musing on his past, Helen offered what he'd told her of his mental state and why he'd fled Vietnam. She said, He's not a coward and he's not a hero. He's just an ordinary person. He's had something held over him getting heavier and heavier each year. He was proud to be a Marine, but he was disillusioned with war. He saw it as politicians playing games and people getting killed. He had nightmares about army life and war, about things he said he saw, like pallet loads of body bags going onto planes and a man who walked into a bunker and shot all of his friends. Paul told me of rats jumping on sleeping people and chewing them. Who could forget things like that? 
By 1986, the couple lived in Singleton with their three children. As sympathetic as Helen was, she could no longer handle the stress or uncertainty of their lifestyle, much less the knowledge that Doug was back in touch with his first Australian de facto, Karen. Helen left Doug in September 1986. Doug took it in his stride. Now that he was a legal resident, he immediately married Karen. Understandably bitter, Helen was left living in a drab house in Cessnock and this is where she was interviewed by the Sun-Herald just before Christmas. The newspaper described her plight. Helen, who receives a supporting parent's pension, has no money for presents. Welfare payments made to Doug's de facto wives and children then became an issue, with Beryl Petch of Ulladulla in New South Wales speaking for many when she wrote a letter to the Sun-Herald. Douglas Bean appears to be a completely irresponsible, totally selfish, thoroughly self-centred man and certainly not the type of citizen we want in Australia. I wonder just how much Douglas Bean has cost the Australian people in his 16 years illegal stay. When Doug gave his version of events to the Sydney Morning Herald, he came across as equal parts victimised soldier, pacifist activist, deadbeat dad, hippie love god and evangelical Christian. He claimed that after being duped by anti-commie propaganda and sweet-talked by a recruiter at school, the US Marines and the Vietnam War had robbed him of the best years of his life. He said, I was always positive toward the war. I was always pro-war till I arrived in Vietnam because I believed communism was an evil and it had to be stopped. Doug said one of his father's friends told him the Marines would make a man of him, build him up, body, mind and spirit. Doug explained, Well, I was interested in building up my body because I was skinny as a kid. My mind? I don't know what I wanted, except I knew I wanted to fight in the next war. I wanted to see some action. And as for spirit, well, I knew I wanted to fight to save my country. But from the start in Vietnam, his officers had disliked him, thinking him, quote, a snivelling coward. Doug said, I wasn't a killer. I never hurt one soul in Vietnam. I never killed one person. I shot one rat and two dogs. He said he'd been victimised by his commanding officer, disliked by his fellow Marines and falsely accused of making that death threat though Doug didn't provide any context as to why he would have made such a threat in the first place. As for his black market dealings and his escape from Vietnam, well, Doug was smart enough not to make any admissions that might have a bearing on his legal fight to stay in Australia. What Doug did offer were a lot of warm platitudes mixed with self-pity. Quote, I've been given love from above, and I love people, regardless of colour, creed or sex. I love people. When all these things were happening, I was crying my eyes out. If I had a dollar for every teardrop I've shed in this country, I'd be a billionaire. Doug said he believed that America would treat him right because I believe in God and I believe America is based on God. Even so, he was in two minds. He elaborated, an American newspaper rang me and said that half the American people are with you and half are against you. 
And that's about my mind. Half of me loves America, and the other half says, never go back there again, they betrayed you. So, I'm in conflict with myself. On the domestic front, Doug seemed much more clear-minded. He said he still loved the other three mothers of his other seven children. He respected that they'd chosen to go their own ways and he didn't want to involve them in his problems. He said, I didn't leave them, they left me. They were very glad to have my children because they found me charming, I suppose. It was their decision to have my children. It's a woman's right to choose. They can't make me out to be promiscuous. And as for the controversial issue of who'd support his offspring, Doug said, All those children are looked after by the grace of God. As far as being supported, I have never had that much money, but all that I have had has been directed to my children. Does the government want me to work 18 hours a day, 365 days a year? That's what I did in Vietnam. Well, I'll do that if that's what I must do to support them to pay back the money the government has paid to keep these children alive. In the United States, his mother Christine was simply glad that her son was alive and well. But when interviewed, she was puzzled that Doug had been caught trying to come home to see his sick father. That's because his father Donald wasn't ill and where this story came from would never be explained. Doug put on a brave public face, but privately he was battling his demons. During his High Court hearing, Doug, who'd signed a media deal with Channel 9, again stayed with his old mate Jack Waterford. Via email, Jack tells me, He was a pretty difficult character to handle, mostly charming, sometimes a bit menacing, sometimes a vast paranoid drunk. I once saw him consume the alcoholic contents of a hotel fridge, care of Channel 9, in only a minute or two. Previously, I had seen Hunter Thompson do much the same thing, but slower. On another occasion, Jack says, a very drunk Doug took a taxi to the US Embassy and tried to surrender, only for the Americans to call Jack and beg him to take Doug back. While that seems odd, it's borne out by what an unnamed senior US official told a journalist for the Age newspaper. Quote, We would just as soon never have heard of Douglas Bean. As far as we are concerned, he is a pain in the ass. But what can we do? The system has been triggered into action, and once it starts rolling, there is no way to stop it. Awaiting his high court date, Doug returned to Brunswick Heads and tried to get on with family life. Karen thought the best thing would be to go back to the US and sort things out. But Doug was afraid that he might get 25 years in Leavenworth Prison. And when he sought assurances from US authorities, they refused to say what, if any, punishment he'd face, telling him only that he'd be reassigned to a marine unit. But Doug's lawyers warned him it was more likely to be a question of which prison he'd be in rather than which unit he'd serve with. On the 9th of April, 1987, Douglas Bean's case was heard in the Australian High Court. 
before his appearance, he had cut his hair and wore a smart suit and tie. The ruling? Six judges voted against his extradition and the seventh judge abstained. The grounds for their ruling? The Visiting Forces Act didn't apply and, quote, Since coming to Australia, he has acquired permanent resident status and during this time has not broken any law. He has the right to be free. Outside the court, a beaming Doug was mobbed by reporters, though this impromptu press conference was cut short when a journalist asked about his many women and children. Doug said, Listen, if you can't ask civil questions, then we're not interested. To Karen, he said, Come on, let's go. And the couple did. They went to a victory party. Sipping on a champagne, there he told the Sydney Morning Herald, I'm on top of the world. It was great. I didn't expect to win. While Doug hadn't wanted to talk about his personal life outside the court, it wasn't because the question was impertinent, but because he and Karen had struck that deal with Channel 9. On a current affair that week, they answered personal questions from host Mike Willisey, with Karen even bragging about Doug's sexual prowess. According to Jack Waterford, it was this television exposure that nourished Doug's belief that his story was worth millions of dollars. Despite what some American authorities had said off the record, officially the US government was still determined to get their man. In response to the High Court ruling, Washington tried to have Doug re-arrested with a U.S. Embassy spokesman in Canberra saying, we want him tried. Doug was flabbergasted. I find it very hard to believe, he said. I felt I paid the price in Vietnam. Faced with this new challenge, Doug wanted to put everything behind him once and for all. To be truly free to go home and to be able to make money from his story. So it was that after bitterly fighting extradition, Doug, with the encouragement of Karen, who was now pregnant with their third child, voluntarily flew back to the United States to face his fate. Coming home the hard way was how Time magazine headlined its 22nd of June 1987 story about his return to American soil. Doug landed at Los Angeles International Airport, where he was handcuffed and taken to the Marine Base at Quantico, Virginia. There, he was issued a uniform, given a regulation haircut, and stuck in a maximum security cell. Two weeks later, having admitted to all charges, Doug received an other than honourable discharge, quote, for the good of the Marine Corps. Walking free just days after he turned 40, a relieved Doug told reporters, I thought last week they were going to push it all the way to a court-martial. I was looking at life in prison. For 18 years I've been living in a state of fear, a fear that has now been removed from my life, thanks to the Lord. This is the most wonderful birthday present I have ever received. 
but Jack Waterford tells me that this high drama was all a charade. That's because before leaving Australia, Doug and the American government had agreed on his light punishment in a deal that gave everyone what they wanted. Doug would get to look brave for voluntarily risking a court-martial, lengthy imprisonment or even the death penalty, and the American government got to look compassionate by not prosecuting ancient charges against a man who'd fled an unpopular war and who'd already served a long exile. But Doug getting off so lightly didn't sit well with a lot of Vietnam veterans who spoke out against him. Interviewed in a West Rutland, Vermont, American Legion bar, a vet named Joe Smith said simply, they should have shot him. Another veteran, Butch Fuller, reckoned, he should have got life. There were 58,000 men in Vietnam who did not have a chance to run. He's not safe here. He should go back to Australia. Doug's release particularly riled Kenneth Buker the former Marine whose life Doug had threatened in Vietnam and who was still bitter about Doug's black market money trading. They should never have let him go, he told the press. He was getting 40 cents on the dollar. The only thing I could figure was that the money was being funneled north to pay for the war. In reference to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, Kenneth Buker said, how many names are on that wall because of him. Naturally, Doug's parents were ecstatic and their reunion with their long-lost son on their Vermont front lawn was beamed live on television across America and was on the front pages of many newspapers the next day. Doug's tearful mother, seeing her son for the first time in 18 years, said, "'This beats the 4th of July.'" His war is finally over, read the headline of their local newspaper, the Rutland Herald. Speaking to reporters, Doug now said that he had never deserted, but had merely been absent without leave for five days just before his tour of duty was due to expire anyway. He'd gone AWOL, he said, because I could see the war was going nowhere. The people were being hurt. I didn't really see any purpose for us being there, and I just thought, we shouldn't be here. Doug further claimed he'd been willing to face his court-martial until he'd been told it was going to be held in Vietnam. That made him think it'd be a kangaroo court, and he'd end up serving a long prison term. He panicked, and he ran. I've grown up a lot in the past 18 years, he said. I'm learning to accept responsibility. Forgive and forget. That's all I ask. But Doug didn't want to forget. Not in this era of movies like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket and Good Morning Vietnam and in this era of intense interest in MIA POW stories. Immediately upon Doug's release from custody, he met with a New York literary agent named Joseph Singer who offered to negotiate book and film rights and who advanced him airfare for Karen and their two kids to come to the States. Meanwhile, Doug offered American officials help with finding missing men in Vietnam, saying that during his time on the run in Saigon, 
he might have encountered any number of deserters who ended up listed MIA. The government took him up on his offer, flying him to Washington and putting him up in a hotel where he was debriefed by officials of the Defence Intelligence Agency. But nothing came of Doug's offer to help and nothing came of Joseph Singer's attempts to sell his life story. Perhaps because the agent wasn't really trading in the big leagues with his other main client back then, a Swedish crooner who'd briefly been married to Joan Collins and who was now trying to flog a tell-all memoir. But at least Doug had Karen and the kids living with him in the United States at his mother's house. In autumn of that year, Karen gave birth to their third child. With his dream of fame and fortune fading, Doug took work as a snowmaker. By the middle of 1988, Doug and his family were doing it so tough, they were living in a camping area and had been forced to turn to charity organisations for food. This was in part due to the fact that as part of his deal with the American government, Doug wasn't entitled to veterans' benefits. Soon after, reports of the family's hard times made the newspapers, Karen and the children returned to Australia, and Doug followed not long after. There, he faded into obscurity. According to Vermont newspaper reports in the 1990s, Doug occasionally returned home and got himself in trouble with marijuana and drink driving. But Doug appears to have spent the majority of his time in Australia. Jack Waterford says he occasionally heard from mutual acquaintances who'd run into Doug somewhere up north. According to online genealogical records and a 2017 Vermont newspaper report, Douglas Bean died in Australia in October 2016 at the age of 69 and was cremated and put to rest at Nudgee Cemetery in Queensland. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you'd like to show your support and help me keep the show running, I'd love it if you'd get yourself a copy of my book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is about our forgotten Hollywood star, Mary Maguire. It's a rip-roaring tale packed with celebrities, glamour, sports, war, triumph and tragedy. And it's available now at all good bookshops and online retailers. I'd also love it if you could take the time to leave a review of Forgotten Australia on the podcast platform that you use. Be sure to subscribe so you get the first episode of Season 2 when it's released in mid-June. Until then, you can find more stories, photos and information at ForgottenAustralia.com and on the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gandangara people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.